Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Hermit's Lamp Podcast. I wanted to let you know that the uh, new intro music here was composed by my daughter, Claire. Uh, I hope you dig it. I certainly am loving on her creativity. Also, this is episode 91 with Enrique Enriquez. And if you have not caught our past conversations, you should go check them out. Episode 13, Poetry, Magic, and Ice Cream. And episode 63, Definitions in Silence. Both available in the archives, either on the website or in your podcast catcher. by saying thank you to all the Patreons who support this podcast in general and specifically help the process of providing transcripts of every episode to the public so that anybody for any reason can access all this wonderful information. Uh, those fine people are getting access to uh, great bonus material and they make this happen. If you are listening to this podcast, think about how many episodes you've listened to, how much you've appreciated it, and please consider heading on over to patreon.com slash thehermitslamp and pitching something in to continue supporting this work. It is truly a situation where every dollar helps. Welcome back to the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I'm here today with Enrique Enriquez, who is a card reader, uh, a poet, an artist, and uh, you know was featured in a wonderful movie called Terology, which you can find on many places online right now. Uh, this is the third time that Enrique has been on the show, and uh, if you haven't checked out the other episodes, check the show notes for them. I'll provide links so people can go back and hear our previous conversations. Um, Enrique, for people who are meeting you for the first time, who are you? What are you about? What's What's going on? Well, you know, the other day I went to a, a bookstore that is across the street. And, and first of all, Andrew, it's always so good to hear you and always so good to talk to you. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, you know, I have this bookstore across the street and I went there. And uh, there was this words there doing something on the floor. But I was talking to this guy and then as I was about to leave, the woman on the floor stood up and said, Wait! And then I turn around and say, what? And say, are you the guy who talks like a bird? And I say, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. And she say, yes, a friend told me about you. And I, that made me very happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, I am the man who speaks like a bird. Excellent. And at the moment, that seems to be plenty. I think that's wonderful. I mean, for me... Uh Listening to the birds and and trying to speak with them is uh, definitely one of my one of my favorite things these days. You know, I've been spending for years now, really spending a lot of time trying to f- engage with them. And uh, more and more over time, I find myself drawn deeper and deeper into into the world of birds. So yeah, it's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I suspect that birds are some sort of unacknowledged religion that is universal. I I, I only know one person, a friend of mine, who says that birds birds are jerks, and he hates birds. 
and he say, "I know you like birds, but I hate birds." And uh, but that's, that's a lot of him, strong feelings for birds. Always, why, why does he hate yes, birds? Exactly, but usually, no. I mean, I guess Lisa, you know, we, we, I think a bird is somehow the the, the embodiment of a longing hmm. for a pro. We look at a bird, we think of birds, we listen to birds. Uh, you know, it's just about survival. They go around trying to find something to eat. There is no no romanticism in his view of birds, which is fine. I mean, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a great exception because usually as soon as you, you know, the other day I was talking to having a, a beer with these poets, a poet from Turkey and a poet from New Zealand. And they asked me, what do you think about Trump? And I told them what I believe, which is that Trump has no place in my reality. I don't care. And then as soon as uh, I mentioned birds, they told me all kinds of fantastic stories about their own relationship with birds. Mm. And about 45 minutes into the conversation, they say, see, that's why I don't think about Trump. Right. I mean, there are better things to, to occupy your, your, your mind. Yes, so I think that that that's a, a birds account for that common longing we have for some sort of transcendence that I I don't want to I don't want to put a name to it. You know? But then when you actually make a bird sound, you realize that you are you are enacting this form that uh, is at once transparent and opaque. You know, because you are not really saying anything, and even so, everybody understands you. Mm. So I end up realizing that I, I like to speak like a bird. Uh, and that basically means that since uh, the beginning of this summer, I started actually recording myself using, using all these bird calls, like these wooden artifacts or metal artifacts that imitate the sound of birds. And then sending my friends bird messages instead of text or voice messages, right? And uh, by speaking like a bird, what I actually accomplishes to I avoid misunderstandings hmm. everybody seems to understand the form of a bird sound I like it I feel like we we must have talked about this on the podcast previously um, you know in the Orisha tradition uh, Osain who is um, he's responsible for all the knowledge of all the plants and all the magic that comes from that he's sort of the wizard who lives in the war in the forest who's been um, Beautiful, yeah. Broke, broken down and, 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 you know, scarred by various various conflicts and, and battles he's had over the years. And, uh, and Osain speaks like a bird. Um, and, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we do certain ceremonies and we sing, there are, there are these parts that, uh, where we sing, where, where we're singing not any words, but just to imitate the sound of the birds and to acknowledge the way in which Osain speaks to us, right? So, ah, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you're, you're in yeah, you're well, good company. <laughs> yes, of course. And, and no, it's amazing when you start looking into it, that the amount of effort and, and time that people have put into trying to imitate birds or talk like birds or understand birds through history. And there is a, just as you say, there there, there was a, some sort of pre-Quranic poetry that was all based on imitating the cooing of a morning dove. And then you have the same in, in uh, New Guinea, 
And there is a tribe there that all their poetry is based on the idea of imitating the cooing of a morning dove, uh, that wailing sound. Mm. But I mean, there are countless examples and, of course, thousands of poems about birds. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm, I something clicked or shifted this summer as I started working with that because I understood that uh, the moment I start sending these bird sounds to people, um, I, I went from somebody who could interpret signs to somebody who was just delivering signs. So they became the interpreters. Mm. They were the ones telling me, yes, thank you. I really needed this today. Or like happened the other day with the, this, uh, this man, um, he sent me a recording of a, of a bird that he hears out of the window. And then I, I just mimicked it. I just imitated the same. I sent him back the same thing, but I made it. And then he say, oh, I love yours because I can hear my own name in it. <laughs> and, you know, and that, that like a friend from Finland who say, you, you know, birds are only quiet when there are earthquakes or tsunamis or something horrible is about to happen. So mm. whenever I hear your bird voice, I just feel that everything is okay. And to me, that's, um, I mean, in a, in a sense, yeah, something shifted because I think that... Um, in a sense, turning the other person into the augur, into the interpreter, hmm. it has something to do with uh, the idea of an oracle as something that should poetize life instead of giving answers. You know. Well, and I think that you know, let, let's be honest about, you know, uh, I mean, I won't even bring my clients into this about myself. There are times where where I go to the oracle, hoping that the oracle will tell me that everything's going to be okay, and you know. The the uh, the prospect of of thinking that well as long as as long as I can hear the bird song, or as long as I can go into my my messenger and and find find a note of you playing and and play that song, the answer is the birds are singing. There's no tsunami. There's no earthquake. Exactly. There's no predator yes. here, right? You're good. Take it easy. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly one of the 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 the, the ways of seeing it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, I mean, it, it has been a, a really you know, at some point I, I, I started to suspect or, to, or, or maybe I decided to start acting as if all this enterprise of divination, as if we, we already got it backwards, you know. And, mm -hmm. and usually we have this idea or this image of the person, the reader, the diviner who's sitting waiting for the client or the, you know, consultant to come. And then I decided, no, it should be the other way around, right? Because in, I, I was reading the Iliad, you know, and, and there is this moment, which is a rather irrelevant moment, when it is said that when a person arrives to the city, he fills everybody with excitement. Because, of course, there is the, the potential of what this person may be bringing, you know, news, uh, things, uh, weird fruit, something, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I thought about that in relationship with angels and the idea of the angel. And of course, uh, angel is a word that comes from, from a, a Greek word for messenger, right? So the idea of the messenger, the messenger brings news, like the birds that come and you say, as you said, you say, ah, everything is okay. The birds are singing mm -hmm. or looking to look over there because the bird, you know, flew that way. So I decided I, I think it's better to, to, to become the angel or to, or to imitate you know, uh, dreams and angels, which are the only oracles that actually visit people. 
hmm. and uh, they obliterate the, the reading on the table and just be appear in people's lives and then disappear, which is something you can now do thanks to all these little gadgets we have and social media and all that. So you can really become or have a virtual presence. So that's where I am at now. You've you've become the psychopomp, right? Yeah, somehow, yeah, in a sense. It's, it's mm-hmm. this idea of, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a witness and, and I, I, I look at things, you know, and at some point, I guess I, what I understand is that I, in terms of giving answers to people, solving people's problems, giving them solutions, healing, all that stuff, I don't do that. I, mm. I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. But I know how to pay attention. I, I, I know how to be a witness. So at some point, it may be that I find a, a pleasant form, right? I, I look at something that is worth contemplating uh, or worth sharing. And then maybe that sound, that word, that form could be the answer to somebody's question or the solution to somebody's problem. It could even bring some sort of healing to them. Mm-hmm. But it's not me. It's not me doing it. It's, mm. They are the ones interpreting the sign. Well, and I think that, you know, I think that one of the things that's really interesting and that, you know, I, I certainly appreciate about you and about all of our dialogues because, you know, I think that the delivering of, of more concrete messages is, is also great and it's a thing that I certainly enjoy. But I'm also really interested in this space where where we where we revoke the expectation of meaning in a concrete way, you know, and like I, I made this deck earlier in the year, which I shared with you when I was in New York, you know, the land of the sacred self oracle. Yes. And, you know, I I I created I initially wanted to say nothing about it and like was like I just want to make it and put it out there. But everybody almost everybody that I talked to was like, I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what to do with this. So I need you to tell me stuff. And I was like, all right. Um, so I created this course for it and, uh, which is, which is now just basically a PDF. And, um, the first lesson is these images are nothing but ink on paper. They don't mean anything. They have no concrete meaning in and of themselves. What do you actually see? You know, because I think that leading people back to themselves is so profound and so powerful and so against the nature of our culture, right? The nature of of the modern age, right? Well, but that what is interesting about that is that that is exactly what contemporary art brought about. Right. You know, up to the to the beginning of the twentieth century, art basically showcase a common narrative and that could be you know you go to italy to see uh all these paintings of the the, the, the virgin mary or christ or the the, the you know the, the book of genesis or whatever um you have this idea of okay we all understand what we are seeing because we share these references mm-hmm. and then came you know malevich or kandinsky or even donald Judd or all these people and say no now you have the possibility to understand that thing before of you in on your own terms. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you're saying. You see, forget about what that is for the other person standing next to you. What is that to you? And of course, we're still 
abhor that. I mean, most people put a lot of uh, resistance to that because they want to be told what it is. They don't want. It's like uh, the other day I had this. You know, I. I I had been reading the cards this woman finds on the sidewalk. I have talked to you about yes. it for more than 10 years. you know. And I stopped the other day because she, she sent me a card and I told her about Nikolai Gogol, the, the Russian writer. And I, uh, there is this um, um, wonderful little book a friend gave me about the dreams of Joseph Cornell. Mm-hmm. So this woman pulled out all the dreams uh, Joseph Fornell wrote in her uh, diary. And the amazing thing is that when you read his dreams, you realize that they are not extraordinary in any way, right? Mm-hmm. Which is beautiful because you realize the dreams are this material that is available to all of us. And a plumber can have dreams that are as extraordinary as the dreams of a fantastic artist as Joseph Fornell. But what was really interesting is at the end, she also um, wrote about all these people that uh, Cornell was uh, influenced by, not in terms of his work, but in terms of his relationship to dreams. And that I found fascinating. He had like the lineage of authors like Blaise Pascal or, you know, Freud. And then he spoke or he, he took notice of Nicolai Gogol. And there was this rich lady who wrote to Gogol saying, can you please interpret this dream for me? Right. Mm-hmm. And Gogol wrote back and say, only your soul can tell you what the, the dream means. Mm. Don't ask any wise man because they won't tell you. They are not able to, to, they won't be able to say what it means. You have to find a quiet space. You have to, within yourself, you will find the meaning of the dream. So I, I send that to this woman, right, who had sent me a little card she found, she found somewhere. And she got enraged. And she told me, no, you have the obligation mm of telling me what it means. Because, of course, we don't want to be within ourselves. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a very tall order. Mm-hmm. And in theory, we don't have time, right? We are always under this imaginary constraint of time. And she said, no, you have the obligation of telling me. And, of course, I drop communication immediately because I, I feel I have no obligation. I mean, I have two kids as obligations enough. Yeah. Uh, other than that, you know, but but I, I in a sense, is uh, I understand there is uh, what you're saying in terms of your own deck. I mean, people have an extraordinary resistance of uh, uh, um, coming to terms with their own experience because actually most people are looking for mythology, not for experience. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they want a little story. Yeah, they don't yeah. want an experience. Well, exactly. You know, and I, I, a friend of mine who I was sharing the art with as I was making it. You know, they they would have this reaction where they'd be obviously fascinated by it, and then, they, but they'd be like, "But I don't know what it means." And I'm like, "Well, just look at it. Do you have a feeling?" And they're like, "Yeah, I really have a feeling when I look at this." I'm like, "Great, then it's perfect. <laughs> Go with that feeling." You know, and th- even their their reactions yeah. were not not articulatable, right? They they would they, I, I might have uh, you know had I had I known then I might have uh, been like. Just sing me a bird song about it, and we'll see what it says. You know. Yeah, well, because if if something is really hidden at home, the only possible responses are either laughter or silence. Yes. You know that's the moment when when we are completely impacted by something, we we laugh, which is almost like a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. or we are quiet because yeah. this, we are taking it deep. You know. Mm-hmm. 
So and and of course we we still think that we have to fill space with words when we are having an experience. Yeah, yeah, because people aren't comfortable sitting in that. So I was at this conference, and uh, as uh, the culmination of the workshop that we were doing, we uh, were to sit and gaze into the other person's eyes and sort of allow all that had been exchanged between us to sort of settle in. And uh, the person that I was sitting with was was uncomfortable with this and started to laugh every time we looked and tried to look away a bit or whatever. Um, and so I just sort of sat there and said, said to myself, well, I can laugh with them. We can laugh together. And uh, so so I started to laugh. And as soon as I started to laugh, they continued, but were able to sort of sit with me with it. And uh, so we sat there, you know, in the midst of several hundred people, everyone else dead silent and gazing solemnly into everybody else's eyes and having their own experience. And the two of us laughing so hard that tears were rolling down our face because it just kept escalating. The longer we did it, the funnier it got, right? And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's brilliant. One, of the, one of the more magical experiences of it, you know, and I don't remember what the rest of that reading was. I have no idea what we said to each other. I mean, I, might, I think I made some notes I could go and look, but for me, the, the real significance was that, that, that we both uh, changed something in that moment through our engagement and our laughter, right? Yes, and, and actually, that was a, 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 an actual communication. You know, you, had, you were communication communicating through laughter, which is, in a way, communicating through form mm -hmm. and not through words. Um, I mean, words are wonderful, and I love words, but words are also overrated. You know, there, there is a whole realm of experience that ex exists outside of words. Sure, yeah. And, and when you really have a profound experience, you are usually in the space outside which then it comes to the problem of sharing it, right? And then you have to find the right words, which is a whole other thing. But but the actual experience is not an experience mediated by language, mm -hmm. no matter what the French say. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that that, um, that, that sort of moment where you're just engaged with something beyond words is is really where where things are wonderful, right? I mean, it's it's an experience yes, that I'm, that I'm always seeking out, you know, in one way or another, right? In my in my relationships, in my relationship with nature, through the art that I make, even even through my hobbies like going rock climbing. One of the things I like about rock climbing is that, you know, when you're 25 feet off the ground and, you know, working on a, a climbing problem, there there's no, there's nothing but the sort of sense of trying to figure out how to move in space in relationship with the wall. And it's not, it's not exactly. words, it's not anything. It's just, a, it's just a feeling and it's the feeling of being in, in that relationship with the wall itself and the puzzle, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually a beautiful example because the, the, the wall is there speaking in, 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 in stone. Mm -hmm. and, then, and your body has to reply in your negative space for the stone. Yeah. Otherwise, you basically fall and die. So right. you have to become in doubt with that form. And that's... Um, yeah, it, it, that's an exact, ex excellent example. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely one of those things where you know you can, you can make your mind up. You know, I mean, especially you know, like I'm not the world's best climber by any means, but you know, I I climb sort of relatively challenging for most people kind of things. You can decide all sorts of things before you before you start the climb, but once you put your your hand or your foot or you know whatever on the on the hold, then it tells you 
if you're listening, what it wants you to do or needs you to do. Yes. And everything that you thought ahead of time kind of can go completely out the window where you're like, oh, I thought I'd be able to hold it from that angle, but in fact, I have to hold it from the other side now, or I have to do this or that, or, oh, wow, that space is so much broader than I thought it was. I don't know how to how to cross that gap now. And then you, then you have to sort of feel it and feel the motion, and it really becomes a, a process of... Um, most of the problem solving comes not so much from from even thinking about it, but from being there and saying, "Okay, where where do I feel the most settled in this position, and where do I feel like I can move from?" Yes. And then you're like, "Okay, now and now I, I can see my way forward." Yeah, and sort of embodied knowledge that you have, we all have, and of course you acquire with experience. The more you speak or you are in dialogue with the rock and the mountain. But at the same time, somehow that's also a dream. That's some sort of dream, which just letting the the, the the symbolic world, meaning the world of forms, guide you upwards. Mm-hmm. You know? For sure. Well, I mean, I feel like this this brings us into something that you and I have been, uh, you know, discussing. You know, kind of, I mean, over the last last year or so, I mean, the last six months. You know, this question of what what does it mean to um, to live with the oracle versus to sort of learn and work the oracle. I'm not sure if I'm articulating it quite right in those words, but it's a good starting point, right? Yes. Well, I yes, and I think that it's extra that is an extraordinarily important question. I think uh, the um, I mean, for example. I mean, there are ways to tackle them, but this year I, I finally managed to stop the entire readings, right? which means that I finally managed to say no, mm. which is really hard because usually when you want to say yes, but I decided that you had no, I mean, I decided that there is a, a you know, honesty is prophecy. And uh, the, when you actually give an honest look, anything, you know the future, and it's only when we fool ourselves. You know, we say, "Yeah, let me invite my, my alcoholic friend to the party, and I'm sure this time he's going to be okay." Mm-hmm. That's when we, you know, get derailed, and then we get um, surprised by something that, in theory, we say is unexpected, but it isn't. You know, we are just fooling ourselves. But um, so I, I decide, okay, if you if you really remove things from table the only thing you can do is be present you know mm-hmm. and, and uh, pay attention but of course i can only accept that because whatever effect uh, uh extended exposure to the tarot had on me allow me now to see um th- that way you know and, and for i see it at some point, you realize that the reason why we place two cards is the spacing between them, right? And, and at some point, then we realize that we we think of that in terms of space only because we are very slow. But it's not really space; it's time. And then we realize oh, that time is equivalent to the time that exists between the two 
we, we, you somehow, you know, once you, you discover and you inhabit the space in between, you, you live, we live in a world all the time, cards or no cards, right? And um, I think that the, the, I mean, the ultimate effect, I guess, is, is to be able to have a beautiful life. And, and, and I think that has, that has to do a lot with being able to be present and to contemplate what is around you. And then you let I, I, I find a, myself in a very strange position because I now work with all these people who are interested in the language of the birds. So we work with, you know, words fundamentally. We, we break words apart and we turn them into little clouds. And we are actually looking for the void within the words, right? And, and the letters become pegs that are holding the void in place. So we go beyond meaning into form. And then I always feel that it's almost like sometimes it's almost like seeing an angel, like seeing a, you know, you, you see this beautiful thing that you, you know you found it when you see it, but you can even define it, right? And uh, it, it has been one thing to do that for years and years on my own. And another very different one to to share that work with other people and then to see the effect that work, work has on them, right? And, and one of the beautiful things, of course, is that people feel very grounded, very center when they do this work. But then you have this also, this other people that I'm sorry. feels... Um, Let's pause for see, a second, Enrique, and so see my that phone stop be. ringing. Absolutely. All right. Apparently, I can't make the phone stop either. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. You, you don't have superpowers. I don't have superpowers. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, in any case, when you start sharing the work with other people and they start doing that work and you, you realize, oh, now people are talking about how their dreams change, right? And they have all these different beautiful dreams that somehow follow the forms they, they are putting on the paper, right? Or, or, or um, people who feel grounded. And then you, you, you realize, well, this is what living with the oracle is. Uh, it, it finds expression in anything you arrange mm-hmm. around you. And, and you know, uh, Gaston Bachelard, the, 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 the French writer, talks about uh, poetic reverie, right? And he says, uh, uh, literally that, he says, we, we can't actually, we have to discount dreams because we don't have control over them. But then if you submerge yourself in a constant state of poetic reverie, you change your own dreams mm-hmm. because you are learning to, 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 to be beautiful in, in the world, to think beautifully, right? And in a, form, in a way, form begets form. So if you, if you are learned to move in a certain way, then that generates an echo, right? And all that, I know that all this may sound very abstract and probably useless, but it all accounts for, for basically being in the, in the world in a beautiful way and living a beautiful life. Eventually, you can share those things with other people. And, um, for example, the other day I, I was talking to this very young woman. Her name was Natasha. And I showed her how her name you know, the, if you separate the vowels, which are the soul of a word for the body, which is the, the consonants, she basically, the, the three A's on Natasha 
form a triangle, right, with a, like an inverted triangle. Mm-hmm. And then the, the consonants form a, a square. So when I show her that as forms, we saw how her soul, the triangle, was a little bit off-center to the square, the body. And she was really concerned about appearing or being too predictable. So that gave her great comfort. Because, of course, having an off-center soul is, uh, is not being predictable. And um, in a sense, I, had, I didn't have to explain that. She just saw something and said, oh, this, this makes me feel better. And uh, I don't know what that is. And again, I never know what that can do for anybody. But I also think that uh, there is some, some comfort for me in thinking that something so abstract cannot be named, right? Because if, if you cannot really name it, then you probably cannot trivialize it. Hmm. I think it's, I think it's, you know, my, my, so many things, all my thoughts are colliding now <laughs> and it's like, how do I, how do I put all this into words that make any sense to anybody else? Right. It's just, uh, um, yes. So we talked about how, uh, you know, being, we need, we need to sort of see things as they are. Right. And that when we're surprised by, uh, circumstance in readings, um, possibly, probably, we've been fooling ourselves on some level, you know, um, because I think that I think that that's certainly my experience, right? There are there are surprises. Life is surprising at times, um, but most of the things that people ask questions about aren't really surprising, and and people generally have a notion about what's going on. They just don't like yes. it, don't want to say it, don't want to face it or whatever, you know. And, and for me, you know, this sort of um, stoic idea of it's always better to know what's real than, than to sort of live in any other kind of version of reality, you know, or to cover it up. I think that that's uh, something that I sort of really have valued over a long time. And I think that the kind of stoic notions, if you can uh, kind of work with them outside of the, the macho bullshit that's so much stuff that gets layered on them today. Um, I think that they really can be helpful. Um, and then I think that once we know what's real or what's, you know, closest to what's real for whatever we want to say about that, that's a whole other episode, but, um, then, then we can start to understand and, and engage with this other world that doesn't need to have, concreteness attached to it per se right and i think about my walk in the woods talking to the birds i think about people always ask me you know like well do you do daily readings what do you how do you read the cards for yourself and you know uh, these days a lot of what i do is i i i just sit with the cards and i put out some marseille cards and then i put out my you know, my, my sacred self oracle and I look for look for the patterns that emerge between those. And especially because I'm often uh, taking notes on my iPad, I'll take a picture of that card and then I'll draw on top of it. And, it, and I've moved outside of the notion of reading in, in any sense that anybody means by that. And yes, and it is so grounding and so centering and sometimes there's a message that emerges. Sometimes it filters back down into language or words or whatever. And often the words that come out don't even really matter. 
they they don't even necessarily make sense in any sort of overt way, but the the flow of them, the the practice of making them or arranging them, the the practice of thinking them, uh, is is the message and is the oracle, and the consequence yes. of that oracle is not tangible and direct in an overt way, but it somehow modifies myself and my relationship to the world, my day, whatever it is that's going on in ways that allow me to move forward yes, in a different that's manner. The, that's the dialogue in the, the, the hand and the wall rock. You know, you, when your hand gets caught to, to, to match the, the, the rock wall you're climbing, it's the same thing. It's form speaking to form. And that in itself is the message. And of course, that doesn't have an, an intellectual effect because you can't just even talk about it. It has an emotional effect, mm-hmm. which is something that a lot of people miss. That when you are in contact with a, an, an oracle, you're basically uh, exposing yourself to to have uh, to to that for that thing to have an emotional impact on you. And and maybe I mean there is something also maybe very silly, you know. But when you you oracle is a word that basically accounts originally at least for an opaque or oblique utterance, right? A phrase, a bunch of words that don't have a clear meaning. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it requires thought. And, and, and in the, the way I see it, there is a, an experience that let's say is a little common still. A person, any person, opens a poetry book, finds a line in the, in the poem and thinks, ah, this speaks to my condition right now, right? And mm-hmm. and we know that that poet didn't write that for her, or not even about. It's not even about that that the person is um is experiencing. But the person can see how that speaks to to her. You know, yes, this accounts for this experience I'm having, mm-hmm. and that's an experience that most people feel or knows or understands, and even in our culture at large value it that there's value in that we, we, we pride ourselves of being a culture that generates that kind of experience so we can take that one step further and say well this is a fale hafiz you know the, the divination with a poet by hafiz the the, the iranian poet which is basically the same thing only that it's not any book of poetry but only a book of poetry by hafiz you think about a poem you have you open it up the first line you read, that's the answer mm. your problem. And the, the the thing is that Hafiz was a very, very obscure poet. So it's never like come back on Tuesday or, you know, play the, the 36. Right. So it's a really, really contrived sentence. So you have to meditate upon it, mm-hmm. which is the same. It's meditating upon form. And then eventually you say, yes, I understand how this is, is speaking to my condition. And we can take that one step further and say the chin, right? In which is still a book and still full of lines, literal and metaphorically. And um, but then now, now we don't say, okay, open it in any page and the first thing you see, that will be it. But say, no, we're, we're actually engaging with chance. So we take all these uh, sticks or the coins and we start going through a process that renders this idea of the odd and the even. So we, you know, we get to these uh, exograms and then 
from the exagrams to some sort of commentary on the exagrams. So we are again left with some sort of ob obscure phrase that in theory is responding to our situation, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next step, of course, is get rid of the book yeah, and keep the, the, the sticks. And right there we have all the divination systems we know, right? We, we have the, the, the shells or the bones or the cards or the coffee stains or grinds or the clouds. And the funny thing is that in our, in our culture, the moment we get rid of the book, we step into what people define as superstition, right? It's yeah. no, no longer this poetical pursuit, basically, because we have this very old-fashioned idea of poetry as something that is anchored on the word, word and not on the form. But of course, every, th every time you look at an oracle you're reading, and that reading is a poetic reading, is as opaque mm. and obscure as the poetry by Hafiz or the I Ching uh, commentary or the poem that you read. And, um, well, in I the, think, you know, I was talking about this with, uh, yeah, yes. In, in a, in a sense, you know, when, when we, um, you know, not in a literal sense, because from within the tradition, we have a different dialogue about it. But from the, the point of view of our conversation, when when we are um, divining with the cowrie shells and we say that the 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 Odu has arrived, right? Like the, the living energy of the Orisha that is the sign that, that came yes. out in this divination. And the belief is that, is that the arrival of that odu changes the person's life it is it is just that process of of invoking that energy through the shells and looking at it and seeing it and it being there and then afterwards the diviner's job is is more so to manage that dialogue and make sure that the person understands enough of what has been said so they can go away and think about it right I mean, and there are other sort of literal pieces too, but but that that idea of the energy of the oracle arriving and us receiving it, and that being the thing that changes our life, you know, it comes with the notion that we don't understand what that is exactly. We can't articulate it clearly, and even even when we're interpreting the Odu in a traditional way, we can't necessarily, on any level, understand all of the implications and so on of that. We are, we are merely just making sure that we've you know, read the appropriate lines that are relevant to it and marked the right things. And after that, it's up to the person to sit with and, and allow that to unfold with them and through them and so on in a way that is certainly energetic and otherwise, but also definitely poetic and goes back to that sort of uh, obtuseness of Hafiz or other things, the I Ching, where it's like, huh, what does this really mean? How does this apply? How does this apply today? How does this apply while I'm at the butcher's? How does this apply when I pick my kids up from school? You know, it's that living with it that is uh, that is where we get the most out of it and where it is the most transformational, you know? Yes. Yeah, and, and I mean, I was talking about this with my wife the other day, and she said that the problem, really, the moment you get rid of the book or the moment that you step into the oracle, is the other person, the interpreter, you know, the, 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 there is this, uh, the moment you, you, you need the other person to tell you how to relate to the, the, the Oracle. And I thought it was really interesting because again, it's, it brought me back to the woman who say, you are in the obligation of telling me because I'm mm -hmm. not going to do any thinking. And of course, um, that, uh, I mean, again, 
it, it is really interesting to, to, to for me at the moment to think that you can by by delivering an open object turn the other person into the interpreter. They have to come to terms with forms and understand what those forms are saying to them. Mm-hmm. Because at, at least I don't know. I don't know what who they are. I, I don't know what they are, you know, feeling. And I most certainly have no no thing to say about anybody's life. Mm-hmm. But they know. I, I think they always know. And, and you say also a few minutes ago, they have an idea of what's going on. And, and basically, they may not like it. Mm-hmm. So they are trying to find almost like a second opinion. That's why, I mean, the other day somebody was asking me about... Uh, the, the ethics of readings and divination and, and I told him well there is an ethical problem because in my experience most clients are dishonest they want to hear what they want to hear mm-hmm. and they will twist your words they will you know, re-ask the question again and again until they get what they want and even if you don't give it to them they will hear what you say as if you say what they want to hear mm-hmm. so of course there is a, a lot of dishonesty in the profession but it mostly comes from the clients of course there are dishonest readers but um, but even the honest reader has to put up with that per- person who has decided beforehand what they want to hear mm-hmm. and uh, I see that of way more I mean again it's, it's really you know I think that there is a, a, a love for the, the imagery, for example, of the cards or any oracle. And at some point, you, you want to really share that beauty with other people. And that takes you so far. It comes to a point in which you understand, yes, but I'm, I'm speaking about beauty, and this woman's still speaking about this very low and Thanksgiving, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really don't care, <laughs> you know? It's, it's not really my problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, yeah. you know, I think too. Like somebody, somebody was asking me if uh, somebody was. I was posting about my so my 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 journey for with rock climbing. Um, you know, I, I was I I'd set myself a goal for the year. This was this was the only resolution I made for 2018, uh, and my resolution for 2018 was to still be climbing at the end of the year. That was my, my entire goal. Um, no achievement attached to it. No, you know, anything else, just still, still be going and doing it. Just keep, keep returning. If you go, if you go away and be, and still be there at the end of the year, because I think that, you know, uh, like the Oracle, you know, if we, if we promise to keep showing up, you know, the, the Oracle reveals things to us over time. Yes. We don't know when or how that comes. And so if we endeavor to be with it, then, then we will hear what we need to hear as we go to a large extent. And somebody, somebody was posting, uh, somebody posted in response to that, that if they, they wondered if uh, the universe challenged us whenever we set an intention, you know, if, if it deliberately brought stuff up, you know. And, um, and, I, and I think that, for me, and I'll let you answer for yourself, but for me, living with the living with the oracle uh, in this open-ended way, and living in a, for lack of a better term, kind of more stoic way, with a with a real sort of working to to see things as clearly as possible all the time, and face the things that I might rather put in the closet or or leave for another day. Um, 
I don't, I don't feel like the universe has a lot of agency in, in the way that that question implies, you know, there, there are surprises that are, that happen, you know, um, you know, in relationship to, to me climbing this year, there, there were two surprises. Uh, one, I dislocated my collarbone in the winter, um, uh, tobogganing Lovely. with my, tobogganing with, with my, my daughter. And, uh, that took like four months to really fix. It's horrible. I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, and, and two, uh, you know, I'm getting divorced this year and, uh, you know, although that is amicable and, and going well, uh, relatively speaking, it takes a lot of time and attention and doesn't always leave energy for other things. Um, but I don't think that any of those have any relationship to, to my intention or my desire to climb or do other things. I think that those are, those are just the, the inevitable stories of being alive, right? We are alive and things happen and we get sick and life comes up and things change and so on. And we don't need to, or I never need to, uh, arrange a narrative around that in a bigger way. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious for you, do you, what agency do you feel comes back from the universe? Do you think that there is something organizing it or, or, testing us or no I, I actually no I, I always say the same thing i think that the universe doesn't care about us or maybe i will say it doesn't care about me right. and i know that people want to be to feel otherwise you know but um you know when i was a kid and this has, image has been coming back a lot recently i watched this documentary about africa right and there was this, this uh, method to, of catching monkeys which uh, consisted of filling up a hollow tree with grain uh-huh. And then, you know, the monkey will stick his hand into the, the hollow tree, grab the grain, but then he couldn't take the hand, the handful, like the fistful out. It, it, the, the hole was only big enough for the empty hand to come in. But if he had grain on his hand, in his hand, he couldn't take it out. Yeah. And basically, these guys just will walk up to the monkey and grab it because the monkey will never let go of the grain. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's insane, right? But I, I think that in terms of daily life, we are all monkeys with our hands stuck on a hollow tree. Yes. And mo- most of the time you realize, yeah, but can you just open the hand and let go? Yeah. Um, life works the way it works. And in that sense, there is no mystery, even if it takes us by surprise all the time. Uh, basically, because we think that there is a mystery there. And yes, sometimes we catch a cold and sometimes we get divorced and sometimes we, you know, are, are, we're surprised by somebody giving us a, a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that actually, at least I understand that that's not the way people think, but I never thought of any kind of oracular work or oracles had any dealings with daily life in that sense of letting me know if I t- should change the oil of my car today or next week you know mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's more about transcending daily life and finding some sort of uh, center uh, true beauty through some sort of uh, yeah to some sort of a, a sublime condition in life for sure um, yeah but all, even the other day I was talking about you know people people talk about um, sigils and then I, I realized first the first mistake you you make when you make a sigil is wanting something, mm-hmm. and then you realize when you make a sigil to, oh, I don't know, lose weight, let's say, and another sigil to 
get a red car, you're basic, basically making the same operation, right? You make you take the words, you eliminate certain letters, and you consolidate everything into one small or smaller uh, emblem. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, but what you're doing there, it doesn't matter what you want. What you're doing again and again and again is a reduction. That's what, in, in the world of forms, what you're actually spelling is a reduction, which means that in time, it doesn't matter how many things you want, wanted, you end up with your mind shrinking. Hmm. And, of course, people don't like that because uh, besides, <laughs> you can't sell a book saying this stuff, right? Uh, you can't sell any books saying don't want stuff. The, the, the only book that says are the ones to say you're, you're entitled to want everything and I can tell you how to get it. Mm-hmm. But you realize um, there is something really silly about trying to control daily life, mm. especially because daily life is not even that interesting, you know, uh, and uh, it takes care of itself. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's it's kind of why... Over the years, I, I've sort of moved to um, my my magic that I do tends to tends to be most often oriented towards what I what I kind of now often call as identity magic, which is how do I how do I change myself so that I can be be more like more like what seems fruitful, more like what. Uh, you know, remove those obstacles in myself to to doing the things that I need. You know, it's not so much about changing the world as it is about uh, shifting myself in relationship to it so that if there's desire attached to it, so that what I desire is more accessible um, or so that I'm more more at ease and more in the flow around whatever it is that I need to work on and change, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's, it's a, at some point I understood or, or I have been made to understand that presence is meaning mm-hmm. and presence is also performance. Mm-hmm. Whatever you are, you are performing, you are enacting, you are projecting something and causing an effect. And I'm at the moment more interested in just being, you know, and be present and play along with the effect that causes. Mm-hmm. It's like when, when this woman started laughing, uh, looking at your eyes and and you laugh with her, you know, you said that's the reality of the moment and that's what's there, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, trying to, to make her shop or, I don't know, levitate will be useless. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's, um, I'm finding a lot of pleasure on, on walking around my, with my pockets empty. Mm. And of course, yeah, I don't know what magic is. I, I think that, in other words, I, I think that magic or, or some experience of mystery that I actually pursue or often feel works best when you don't want anything, when you don't want it, and it appears, it surprises you, mm-hmm. gives you something. It's like if, you know, but it's not something you pursue in terms of how can I command for this to happen at will. Mm-hmm. And again, I understand that when you say that magic, when, the moment I 
speak of ma magic without will and almost like undefining magic in terms of what people think magic is, right? They all seem to be convinced it's about will, exerting our will. And I think it's more about stepping aside, letting things happen. You know? mm -hmm. Well, I think it's definitely about... Um, it's almost like... For me, for me, it's definitely about uh, making space so that the so that I can be engaged and present with the subject of the magic in a way that it allows it to unfold to some extent without control, to a large extent without control, because I think that the idea of, you know, oh, I really want this person to fall in love with me. I mean, I think the minute that you're fixated on, on one person is the minute that you, you've already kind of drifted into a problematic territory and should go back to yes. why, why that person? Why do you want them when, when they are not reciprocating? What, what is it you're looking for? What is it you could do without magic to make this? You know, I mean, many questions, right? Um, but, but rather, what, what, could I, what could I do to have more, more romance in my life? What could I do to have better connections? And is there a magical act that, that feeds and supports that in an open-ended and sort of allowing the universe to show us and allowing ourselves to witness and notice it in an open open and present way as the opportunities float around us rather than sort of exerting a massive amount of control, which I think is, which is very rarely fruitful, you know? Yes. Well, you know, my, this year, one of my favorite moments is I have this friend who about 12 years ago, he was named the, the godfather of a child, right? And he decided beautifully that his gift to this kid will be the gift of language. Mm -hmm. So he set up an account, a bank account, and he has been putting money there for years, assuming that at some point maybe this kid will want to learn you know, Italian so he can go to Rome and live there and learn the language. But then this summer he spent a morning by the river and we were playing with all these bird voices you know, and talking like birds and the birds will come and all this and that. So, and he went, he bought a box full of bird colors and send it to this kid. Yeah, so there is something extraordinarily beautiful and, and inspiring a person to 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 commit this crazy act of gifting a kid a set of bird colors, and then he 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 wrote this note saying, "I believe this is a good first language for you to learn," and and then for that gesture not to fall flat, you know, and for the kid to actually embrace this. And then this is a kid, I don't know, I have probably never seen my life, but somehow it's, it's beautiful to think that there is, there is some, some residual effect of what I do that is part of that kid's life. And um, I don't know, I mean, the other day, for example, uh, this woman uh, wrote to me and she said that she wanted to speak like a hawk and beautiful whistle, this a bronze whistle that actually allows her to do so. And she said, well, I have a problem. And the problem I have is that I'm surrounded by sparrows. So I, I'm, I told her, well, you know, the problem is that the only way you have for you to know if you are actually doing it right is that all those sparrows are going to fly away because you, you become a predator, right? Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, but I mean, I, I love the sparrows. I, I, do you think they are going to trust me? Said, yes, I mean, they are going to trust you as much as a sparrow trusts a hawk. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's fantastic to, to, to think that you can uh, 
hate this face when a person can ask you that question, can talk about the suffer for bird nests, like to, 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 to be close to the birds. Um, and at the same time, we are really not just talking about talking like a hawk, we're talking about voice, we're talking about the consequences of having a certain voice and the, being responsible for what we say, what we put out in the world. Um, I mean, I, my, I mean, full of examples of, 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 of uh, um, what I consider poetry or, or living a poetic life through uh, embracing the form of, of bird voice and, and the bird language. Um, so, yeah. That's wonderful. Well, maybe we should wrap up the, the us talking part of the, the conversation here. And there were definitely some questions that came through through Facebook. And I think at this point, uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear you give like a one word or, or one phrase answer to them rather than us sort of go into big, long conversations. Perfect. Kind of like we did in one of them where, where yes. I did the rapid fire questions at you. Let's, let's look at these rapid fire yes. and see what comes, okay? Uh, so one person asks, okay. um, uh, so with your children, um, are they interested? Would you teach them these, th these things about card reading? Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on children and, and cards? Well, I, I I have three kids. The middle kid already asked me to teach him, and I did so. And then yesterday, my daughter told me that uh, she's 10. One of his friends, his classmates, actually asked, did your father ever um, taught you or told you how to read? And the word in the French way, in such a beautiful way, that I think she already knows everything she needs to know. Yeah. My... Uh... My my youngest uh, got a Sibylla deck, um, and uh, and reads that for uh -huh, me sometimes. Sibylla, yes. And it's just you know she's so great at it. It's just she's like, oh look at this. Somebody's going to do something you don't like, but this is going to happen. But there you go. It's so wonderful, right? They they have a sense of it, I think, which is great. And yes, it's less about teaching and more about just yeah. I mean, my son, when I explain it, yeah, when I explain it to my son. In, after 15 minutes, he told me, oh, I understand. This is all about transformations. And I realized, ah, it took you 15 minutes. It, it took me 15 years. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that. Yeah. All right. Next question. Um, what What is the poem that the world needs in these times? I don't know. I... I mean, I guess the, the, my my issue is that I don't have any faith in the poem, hmm. as a, you know, in the actual poem. I guess there there is poetry, and and poetry is everywhere in a sense. But I will say, in terms of poetry, yes, just uh, you just need uh, to listen to the sparrows. You know, the sparrows have this beautiful thing that is they they are like sand monks. A sparrow only makes a, like a little sound, you know, mm -hmm. over and over and over. So it says everything it needs to say in one syllable. It's almost like uh, tasting water, you know. Perfect. So, yeah, yeah, the voice of the sparrow. Um, what has surprised you regarding tarot in the last couple of years? You know, the, 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 the tarot world is, uh, is uh, like that movie Groundhog Day. You know, in which you wake up in the morning, it's the same day again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, so, Bill Murray. <laughs> so we, we are all Bill Murray. Perfect. And, yeah. And that's every day, the same deck is being published, the same book is being published, the same conversation about the origin of tarot is being published, the same theory about how the, the secret behind it is being discussed. Mm-hmm. And that's how we go, you know? It never yep. ends. Perfect. Um, do you consider tarot magic? And, and do you practice any forms of magic? No, every morning I, I sit at a cafe at the same place next to a window. I look at words in my notebook. And if something appears in terms of form, I share it with some people and then that snowballs into something. Mm-hmm. And that's the magic I do. And um, yeah, I mean, everything can be, I guess, magic. But I do feel that for something to be magical, there has to be an otherness, mm-hmm. uh, meaning it has to take you to another place. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, I don't know, to imagine doing magic with something that is completely like a daily thing, you know, mm. but it could be. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, in any case, I, I don't know if magic, I think that the world has a poetic influence, meaning that forms speak to each other to analogy. Maybe that's magic. I don't know if magic is an intelligence. I don't know, again, if there is an agency, like a, a big finger hmm. that is invisible and is swirling things behind. I don't know. Yeah, fair. Um, and uh, last question. What would, it, what would it take for you to pull out your tarot deck again right now? Given that you're not really doing reading. Every time I have anymore. make an exception. Yes. Yeah. Every time I make an exception, I, I end up confirming that it's pointless. Hmm. So no, I don't think so. I'm not, you know, I have nothing to sell and I'm not uh, in a crusade for people not to do readings or to miss any kind of ideas I may have. I'm just trying to, to get by by finding my own language of all, mm-hmm. all these things, which yeah. is a way of saying to find my own. You know, I think that that's what the philosopher's stone is, hmm. to find your own language. Right. And your own language is not English or Spanish or Italian. It's, it's how you organize forms around you. And uh, that's why the, the, you know, the, the, the alchemists say that uh, that's a great work. You know? And they, they say that Philosopher's Stone cannot be handed down, you know, passed to another person. You have to find it yourself. It's because of that. You have to find your own language. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's living in, in, in the shadow of another person's language. Right. Perfect. And, uh, yeah. So, so no. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it. Go find your language, everybody. Perfect. Perfect. And if it sounds yes. like birds, let us know. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for for hanging out with me this morning, and uh, especially for fighting through all the Skype up and downs. It's what I get for recording uh, during Mercury retrograde. No, it's okay. It's always great. Perfect. Thank you. It's it's always great to talk to you. Thank you, you too. I hope to soon. I hope you love this conversation. As always, I hope that. Enrique did uh, all the Patreons the pleasure of recording a bird song just for them. So if you are a supporter of the Patreon in the $5 and up category, you can go find that recording now at patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp. And if you're not a supporter, well, what are you waiting for? The birds are waiting to speak to you.
Talk to you next time.